Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinty, and in this series, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. This week, I catch up with Matt Brown, the publisher of Extra Points, a newsletter he created that focuses extensively on the business of college athletics. Now, to be sure, it's a niche publication in a nascent medium, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a fad, because as Matt believes, good content never goes out of style. I think there's always going to be an appetite for user-generated content in some way. I don't think it's always going to be newsletters. And, and part of the appeal for the news, of the newsletter world for a creator is that it frees you from being dependent on a lot of other big technical companies. Right. Um, if you're writing a blog and Google tweaks their algorithm or Facebook tweaks their algorithm, you're mm-hmm. completely screwed because not only is that where most of your ad, your, the ad money is controlled by, that's also where most of your traffic is controlled by. Whereas if you, if you have a, an, email, an email listserv, theoretically, you own those email addresses. Now, in practice, Gmail could decide to nuke all of my emails and put them in promotions and my open <laughs> rate would fall, through the, would fall through the toilet. And this is kind of happening already a little bit with, with uh, how we evaluate open rates. But there's a greater measure of control, which I, which I think is here to stay. What I think is important, though, is that in order to do this well, it is running a business. And not every creator, not every writer has the inclination, the skills, or the interest to be an entrepreneur. Um, I'm not the best writer on the internet by far. I'm not the best college football writer. I'm not the funniest. I'm not the most plugged in. Um, I, I, I think I'm, you know, reasonably funny and reasonably plugged in and reasonably thoughtful, but like I, I can't compete on being the most any of those things. But I, I am somebody that cares a lot about the business stuff and is willing to get in the weeds and evaluate different products and think critically about buying ads. And part of that was my experience at Vox too, which I think has helped me be successful. And I've looked at people who I think make better stuff than I do that wouldn't be able to do what I've done uh, or, or, or follow a similar pathway because they don't have the patient skill or the ability to hire someone else to take care of that stuff for them. And, and there is a yet to be developed industry to better support newsletter creators mm-hmm. like and quite frankly, podcast creators too. Like I think there, there is, there's been enough of one to support bloggers and that might help. But until that really grows, um, being able to write good stuff is not going to be enough to help you be a sustainable small publishing business. In the self-publishing world, one of the challenges is the need to do a fair bit of self-promotion. For Matt's newsletter to thrive, he needs to be constantly converting many of his social media followers and free subscribers to paid ones. And he's had a ton of success in his first few months, building up a passionate audience that is more a community than merely passive readers. I'm not somebody who's very good, I think, at really celebrating a lot of those successes. And part of that just comes from having been in digital media for a long time, and you're always kind of waiting for the other proverbial shoe to drop. but. You know, if, if, if I can be honest, I built a niche media product in the middle of a pandemic, working almost exclusively out of my basement, usually while I had other kids at home. And a year and a half into it, it makes enough to, to support me. It is financially self-sustaining. It, is, it brings in a little over $60,000 a year, you know, in, in, in revenue. And I feel really bullish about its growth potential in the next year, 
I have uh, multiple other companies that are looking to potentially invest or acquire it or help it grow it to another level. So it's not perfect. It's not exactly what I want it to be. And I've had to, to make some tweaks and changes and it hasn't been easy, but I, I, I really do think I, I should look at, look at this holistically and say like, it's been an overwhelming success. It, yeah. It's been more successful than I had expected. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful and very lucky for that. And, you know, it's not just a success from the growth of your audience and the interest in investors. I would argue it's been a success from, and you and I have had this conversation before and you don't have to disclose anything, but like who your audience is, like you're getting well-connected, well-read, important people in the athletics and the college athletics industry and in the partnerships and the ecosystem around that. They're active readers and they're commenting to, to you that they're reading and they're sharing and all of that. I mean, that's got to be pretty gratifying. It, it is, but I, I got to tell you, what's honestly most gratifying about this isn't just that it's read by influential influential people in this industry. And I don't mind disclosing this either. Like that's that's true. Most Division One conference offices, whether it's the commissioner or a high level staffer, subscribe to this newsletter. I think mm-hmm. almost everybody in the Big East office does. Um, most of most Power Five and several athletic directors do. Uh, we have multiple readers, I think, from every major outlet, media outlet that covers college athletics. But by, you know, clearly there's a lot more market share in that world to, to obtain. But it's also very gratifying that it's read by a lot of people who aren't because right. I, I'm really kind of chasing two different audiences and, and really writing for both of them. But one of them are the influencers, the insiders, the people that are, are building careers and, and leading this industry and are interested in some of that minutia. But then it's also people that don't. And, and the, the term that I use on talking to, um, you know, sales clients or your potential sales part, you know, ad bo- uh, partners or other individuals is right. like they're nerds. And that's what, <laughs> that's what deep love in my heart. It's not a pejorative at all, but there's some people that care so much about college athletics that they'll read a story about FCS conference expansion, <laughs> that they'll read about UTRGV or Ball State or something. And the fact that I can bring those audiences together and help them talk to each other and learn from each other, that's the most gratifying thing. And that's what I ultimately really hope for Extra Points to be as not just a, a kind of, you know, sports business journal that occasionally swears, you know, for, for an executive set, <laughs> but also for people who are, you know, are on Reddit and are on message boards and who are undergraduates who are studying sports media and sports management and want to understand how this all fits together. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow road to try to hit all of those people, but, but that's what I'm really trying to do. Well, and, you know, Wes Blankenship mentioned this to me in, a, in an earlier conversation, but there's a notion of when, when you're creating a platform, like, like, you know, you're, you've created extra points. Wes is now working with outsider um, what Spencer Hall and Holly Anderson are doing um, as well. You're not just creating content, you're creating community. And I think, you know, that goes to your point. And that's something that I think is wholly new in our media landscape. I mean, it's, it started with the advent of blogs back in the, the mid two thousands and continued with, the SB Nation experience, which we can probably talk about that at some point today too. Um, But that notion of community seems to be something that, that gives you and your, and what you're delivering something that's different than what you would get. And this is no knock against like a sports business journal or something like that. Yeah. And honestly, 
I would say that Sports Business Journal does have that community. It's mm-hmm. just with with a, a, a different subset of their readership, you know, and, and that community might be an event. It might be something at a country club. And again, that, that's not pejorative, but like that's if it's a publication that's mainly aimed at the executive set of a small industry, a lot of them know each other. They find ways to, to bring them together. They're not the, that's not the kind of people that are going to hang out in discord um, like like some of my readers might. I think anybody that's starting a publishing venture at this point has to really think about community because that, that is a big part of what people pay for, uh, especially if you're not breaking news that people literally can't get anywhere else. And that, that's a hard thing to do. One of the, the beautiful things about community, and it's something that I think about a lot and I'm trying to improve, is that I don't want extra points to just be where I am like on Mount Sinai dictating content down to like the masses below. Not right. only is that not the most like fun and engaging experience, it's also a lot of work. It's a lot of work to climb up that right. mountain and talk to God every week, right? <laughs> In a perfect world, you want to be able to have the person who's running the community be able to share content and then people on the ground share content with the leader. And then if you've really got this figured out, everyone's talking to each other and you're right. having people then buying access, not just to things that I have to say, but to things that my readers have to say and building professional relationships that way. Uh, and, and if you're able to do that, the, the, the liberating thing is you don't need scale. You don't need to have a very, very big number. Um, I, I'm sure Wes is in this similar boat, but I don't really care about page views. I don't right. check my clicks. Um, I don't need to appeal to 100,000 people. It'd be cool if 100,000 people subscribe to Extra Points, make it a lot easier for me to sell an ad. But <laughs> oh, I mean, I have 700 people that pay for this. And that's enough to, to give me a living. And if I had twice that much, I would have a comfortable living and I could pay for someone else to have health insurance and, 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 and do work for me there too. And 1,400 people, I mean, that's the enrollment of Presbyterian College. That's not, a, that's not an enormous number. That's something that I think can be replicated by other niches, whereas 100,000 or a million, probably not. It, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, but is because I, I feel like the answer is yes. But I feel like this micro-targeting niche self-publishing world is the, the, the future for us. That's not to say the New York Times of the world, the local newspapers of the world, that they're going away. But it's that people have more focused – or they get exposed to something and then they develop an interest in it. And I'd be a good example of that. I mean, I worked in sports – journalism and then I worked in sports PR. So I got exposed to sports business. So when I came across your newsletter, I thought, well, this is perfect. Not only am I a college sports fan, I like what goes on behind the scenes. So is, do you kind of agree with that? Do we think that, that this self-publishing slash little mini niche operation of two, three, four people, is that sort of the wave of the future you think? To be honest, um, I think it is a component but I do not think it's the wave, like the, it's going to become the dominant model. Right. This, this system has some clearly defined positives and some significant drawbacks. The positives, it's, there's a low barrier to entry, and it's easier to serve really small, highly targeted communities that aren't well served by scale-driven um, programmatic ad built outlets, right? Like if, if you are a fan of Appalachian State football and you are only reading ESPN, and Sports Illustrated and CBS and maybe even Barstool, you're not going to get very much information because it's not in their it's in their interest to write about Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, and Ohio State. 
Sure. Um, and, and as somebody who did this for seven years with Vox Media, like that's that, that's true. Like that was we that was our reality. Um, and, and then, but a Substack, you can find 800 people that would pay information for information about App State. Like message boards have been doing this for 15 years, and that's a sustainable model. Some of those people make really good money running running those kind of boards. But if you're that lean, you also don't have some of the infrastructure around you that might be needed to, to write good stories, right? So like for extra points, as, as an example here, uh, I don't have a regular attorney, right? I, I have somebody that, I'm, I, that I'll consult with a couple of times a year, but if I am considering a story that has you know, real litigation risk, I probably won't publish it right now. I'll probably feed it to a bigger company that has the infrastructure to support me, to support and investigate that writer. I can't afford a staff photographer. I can't afford a Getty subscription. Um, that's something that's easier with, with scale. Some ways of monetization are easier with, with, with some scale. And then perhaps most importantly, I don't have an editor. And any, mm-hmm. any, any writer right now that tells you that they don't want an editor, editor is a bad writer. Like any, right. any, you, would, you would need somebody that has the presence of mind and is self-aware enough to realize that not only, like for me, am I an atrocious typist that will make typos, <laughs> but I crave somebody being able to tell me when my ideas are stupid or be able to talk through some of those ideas. And if you're, you're self-publishing and you're one, two, three person shop, you don't have access to that. Yeah. Um, and for some people that's okay. And for some fields, I think that's okay. But for investigative journalism, for perhaps some elements of local journalism and for other communities, I, I think you do need a bigger entity. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't look at this as like the future or, the, or necessarily the dominant um, way of publishing, it's, it's a tool and there mm-hmm. are other tools. And I, I think the more tools that are sustainable, the better that will be for consumers. Is to kind of, you know, go down that road a little more is one way to tackle this. And I've, I've long thought this might be an obvious uh, end game is let's say it's you and three or four other writers, you know, who may be in different niches. I mean, one of them might even be in sports, but it could be is one op- option potentially these independent self publishers sort kind of come together and I'm going to use the word collective because it's the okay. name of my company, but it y'all come together and then you can get a little bit of that scale. You can pool some resources, you can hire potentially an editor, you can obtain a legal support if needed. I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, a ton of ways that you could, you could tackle this, but is that something that you've given any thought to? I definitely have. And trying to think of the best way that I can answer this. So there are the the technical tools to be able to do this effectively are not all all the way there yet for everybody. I mean, the the kind of uh, dominant CMS for independent publishers right now is Substack, which I think is a great tool for a certain kind of use case, but it's not really built to support this sort of thing. You know, that's something that Ghost or Pico or something that's a little bit more, um, complicated or technical or powerful may, may be able to allow. But I, I think it would make sense for consumers and for many publishers to do that. Um, I have been in talks with a lot of different entities over the last three months about selling either all or part of extra points in part to acquire some of that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I could build a nice small little business where it's just me, but I also, in addition to writing for usually pretty meaty newsletters a week, often with original reporting, there's also a podcast. And then I'm handling customer service. I'm my own webmaster. 
I am my own salesperson and I'm not just selling at the banner, you know, display ads. I'm trying to sell bulk subscriptions or institutional subscriptions. I'm also speaking to classes. I'm doing podcasts. I so mean, you're, you're, radio you're, hits. you're taking time for, for stupid stuff like this. <laughs> I, I, I consider all, all part of it, but like, I'm looking at this going like, man, I can't, I can't do all that forever. And so if I sell to somebody else to handle the ad infrastructure or to check my typos, or who has a, a bigger book of business so that we could call up the University of Florida and sell them a 200-person subscription plan for $5,000 instead of me mm -hmm. trying to track down eight different professors and do it myself. Right. That's the move. And so, and, and that's kind of, that's the way it is in so many under industries, right? You have a gajillion little entities, and then you start doing some consolidation here, and you hope it doesn't go down the road that blogs did, where it mm -hmm. started off that way, and then you had little bits of consolidation, and then it kind of ended with you know, BuzzFeed owning a third of them. Um, and right. then you had to, you had to consolidate to be able to, to get the scale you needed to sell ads. I hope it doesn't go that way, but I do think you're going to see some kind of consolidation. Like me, Matt was forced to start his venture during the pandemic after the loss of a job. And while he loves the work of Extra Points, he also has been very candid about the pressures and stresses of being a small business owner, writer, husband, and father throughout these turbulent 18 months. Like, I'll be honest, I'm fucking exhausted. Like, it's, it's, and, and I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to belittle this, right? Because, like, to me, I felt like I had to keep doing it because I didn't have a choice. Right. Even though I'll be, yeah, over the last two or three months, um, my health has has declined a little bit. I've, I've lost, I think, most of the pandemic weight that I gained, um, which is which, which is a positive thing. But was I sleeping the same way? Was I working an unhealthy amount of hours? Was I like really throwing myself into this? Yeah, and you can do that for three, six, nine months. But um, you know, about a year and a half into it, I'm like, I part of the are you the part the other part of the reason I was been so motivated to sell is just like I can't keep growing this by myself. Like right. what, what I really want to do is take a month long vacation and throw my phone into a lake. Um, and then I would see the internet saying like, listen, it's okay to be less productive. You're loved go take some time off. And I'm like, look, Chase bank doesn't agree with you. The mortgage <laughs> has got to get paid. And even if I decide I'm not going to work, I've got a three-year-old and a seven-year-old here and their daycare closes every three days because of COVID. Right. Like, there, there is no break. Um, right. I'm feeling a little bit better now because for the first time in like a year and a half, I've had a couple of days where both of my kids are in school, um, yeah. which has allowed me a little bit more time, uh, not just to work, but also candidly to not work. Um, I've tried to scale down a little bit of what I've done with extra points, but it's a real challenge. And I, I, I'm not afraid to admit that. And I, I think we should be in public. Like one, this has been very hard. Um, and two, Part, the, part of the reason that I've been able to be as successful as I have, even though I've, do, I, I've done the lion's share of the work, is because, one, like my wife is doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes from occasionally copy editing what I'm doing to putting the girls to bed uh, every night so I can come downstairs in the dungeon here and, and write and, and, you know, taking care of some family responsibilities in the evenings so I can, you know, be flexible and do things during the day while, while, while she's working. Um, and because... You know, when I got laid off, Vox cut me a big buyout check. Yeah. So I I was able to get to survive knowing that I wasn't going to make real revenue from this project for three or four months. Um, and it, I mean, substan like substantial revenue, if you can call what I make now from that for for longer, which is not something that's available to everybody. Um, 
I wish I could say with certainty that it's going to get better in the future. And that's not just a COVID thing, but you know, what the future of my business looks like and everything, but um, it is, it is a challenge. And if, if I knew the exact right, perfect balance for work and family and everything else, I'd tell you, but uh, I don't, um, I'm, I'm, I'm self-medicating with monster a little bit less, a little bit less now though, which I think is good for my kidneys. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you mentioned that, you know, people who tell you just go take a break. We, we took a week vacation earlier this year, the first one we had taken since, like, I guess, since the pandemic happened. Um, and cause I, you know, I was laid off last February for my job because of COVID and started my whole venture, but yeah, people would tell me, you know, yeah, do you just need to unplug and take some time for yourself? And I'm like, well, I really can't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm self-employed. There's no leave I can take. I don't have benefits. I'm, you know, we're, I'm having to do this myself. And if I have a writing project that's due, if I have a client who needs something, I have to do that because it really is anybody else to do it right now. I'm optimistic that in two, three, four years, we'll, I'll have a team of writers and PR people who can help us and we can grow this. But I mean, 18 months in, shoot, not even that for us. I mean, what, 15 months in, it's still just us having to grind on it. And, you know, I think that gets lost when people start talking about taking that that time for yourself. Yeah, I, I would definitely do it if I didn't have to pay my mortgage for a couple of months. <laughs> That'd be great, right? <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or if, if other obligations ceased. Um, but I mean, yeah, one, like people pay me eight bucks a month to read this. And I take that very seriously. I want to make sure that they get their money's worth. But even if I just said, all right, I'm refunding everybody and closing down extra points for a month, that wouldn't change things that much. And maybe that's a failure of the government or a failure of society or something. Like I freely admit, I'm very, very tired. There yeah. were times this summer when normally if you're in the college football world, July is when you relax. And I haven't been able to relax for two consecutive Julys because last July it was, are we going to have a football season at all? Mm-hmm. And this July, it was name image likeness. It was the Austin case. It was conference realignment. It was um, earth shattering name image likeness changes. And for me, I got to make, I, I got to make hay when I can, like that's yeah. my beat. When, you know, if, if Texas does something crazy on the field, you know, that's awesome. Good for the Austin American statesman. Um, that, that's not really my beat, but all the other weird Texas stuff, that's what I, people pay me money to read about. So I got to do it. Um, and I, I know I can't, I can't keep doing it at the pace that I've been doing now. Is that a level? Cause I remember back when I had my little local hyper news or lo- hyper local news blog didn't make a dime from it, did it out of, out of hobby and passion. And this is 10, 12 years ago, but I felt a need to write something every day, no matter what else was going on in my life, because I had an audience, however small and focused they may, they may be, they wanted to read it. So I had an, I felt an obligation to them. You have not only that audience that is substantially larger than what, what mine was, they're paying you $8, some 700 of them are paying you $8 a month. Does that add a different level of pressure to be able to produce good content on a daily basis or weekly basis? You know, it, it, well, I definitely feel the pressure um, because money's hard to come by. And many of the people that, that pay me are students. And so I want to make sure that I'm delivering something worthwhile to them. I, for good or for ill, never really struggle with what to write about at this stage. I have a little Trello board that I use to kind of organize my, my thoughts. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, I have three times as many ideas as I have the capacity to produce. Right. You know, I would love to have a map round that did nothing but report 
a Matt mm-hmm. Brown that did nothing but write and a Matt Brown that did nothing but edit. And then also sometimes do sales calls, right? But there's just one Matt Brown. And when I'm done talking to you, I'm going to go pick up my, my second grader. Um, so I, I don't really have writer's block and I don't really sit down and, and, and panic about that, but there, there is, there is. And, and, and I also recognize it's probably irrational, right? If I told my audience next week, that like, listen, I know it's week three of college football season, but your boy's exhausted. Down. Right. And I need a week off and I'm going to go in the woods and I want to go play NBA 2K comes out. I'm just going to play basketball for 12 hours a day. Right. I don't think I'd lose a single subscription, mm-hmm. um, but the inertia, it would, it would stress me out so much to actually do that, that I'm not sure I could actually enjoy it. And, and maybe right. that's a problem for a therapist. Maybe that's a problem for, <laughs> for selling out to a different company to kind of help me work through. Uh, I, I took one real vacation during, um, since I launched extra points, I, I went out to, to Utah for about eight days, did some camping, saw my, my brother and sister-in-law who I love. And then the Austin case drops while I'm, I'm gone. So yeah. even though I had hired freelancers to write stuff while I'm gone, I'm still spending like half a day editing and like coordinating and doing a radio hit because I can't ignore that case. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to do a better job about this during football season. I spent so much of my career watching 12 hours of football Saturday. I'm not doing that this year. I did that for week one. I'm going to watch the Ohio State Oregon game this week. I might watch one other game, and that's it. I'm going to go camping at least once this fall and just blow off an entire Saturday. And uh, I think my audience will be okay with me doing that. I haven't done it in a decade. I mean, I'm I'm one of your your subscribers, and I give you full permission to go take care of that time for yourself. Um, well, I, I I cannot have you on the podcast and not ask you about what you think is the most interesting storyline off the field so far. I mean, we have NIL, which is fascinating to me. We have, uh, and, and you've, you actually did some NIL sponsorships. We have the Texas, Oklahoma situation and the, the, the ongoing, how that's created the Alliance and how now the AAC is looking or is considering having, or a lot of its teams are thinking of leaving and going to the big 12. What has been like, what, what have you been most intrigued by like out of all these insane crazy off the field stories which one what has really piqued your interest there are two i mean i am i'm really interested in name image and likeness um i'm interested in that from an ideological perspective because i want athletes to get the bag and i think that's like a net positive thing right but um i'm also interested not just in how schools handle this but what kind and not just what, how much money or what kind of deals athletes athletes do but how they're able to utilize this opportunity to expand their world beyond their football program mm-hmm. i'll give you an example i've done a couple of these name image likeness deals i'm talking to a handful of athletes and, and we'll probably announce a few other deals in the next week or so um and one of the athletes i spoke to is a, a women's basketball player at alabama told me over the phone that when she's done playing uh, professionally, she would like to be an athletic director. And so what I was able to do then is say, you know, hey, listen, great. I've got a bunch of athletic directors who subscribe to Extra Points. After your season, let's, uh, let's, let's set up some calls and have you talk to some of those people and, and, and kind of pick their brain about their career and, and build, a, build a connection that way. Um, and I've been able to do this for a couple of athletes and for a couple of my readers, and it's enormously gratifying. And what, where I get, like, honestly, not just emotional, but like, like really excited is how this world can uh, meaningfully improve the lives and educational experiences of athletes. There are so many, there's going to be so many things written about the Bryce Youngs of the world 
But most athletes aren't Bryce Young. But mm-hmm. I, I think that this is a world that can be really beneficial to them, even if they only end up making a couple of hundred bucks, because it allows them access to what, you know, what other athletes, other students would get from like an internship um, or for different kinds of coursework or, or, or academic flexibility that an athlete just doesn't have. So I'm very interested in that. And I'm very interested with what happens with the NCAA like, constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. Not because I necessarily think we're going to have any real transformational change out of this. The, the membership of that committee right now really does not make me optimistic. But I think it's important for, to, to kind of force people to talk about what we would want college sports to look like and be if we were drawing it up from scratch right now, instead of just kind of duct taping things again and again and again um, to what we built in 1910. I, I would imagine it's going to look much more similar to what esports looks like than um, what college athletics does right now in, in terms of how we define amateurism or how that fits together. And I think that's, um, I think that's an important and intellectually stimulating and, and interesting conversation that I'm, I'm glad is happening. So I'm, I'm, there's a bunch of other, I mean, I get asked about conference realignment all the time and I'm interested in money and I'm interested in academic changes, but these two kind of big structural things um, are the most intellectually engaging to me. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com, and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.